We're in Luke 8 today, the first 21 verses, and we'll be covering a passage that might sound familiar to some of you if you've been to church for a long time. Jesus is the Savior to all. That is Luke's presentation. He's the solution to our truest problem, which is namely our sinfulness. Jesus is qualified with the right credentials because he's greater than the prophets. He's fully divine. He's fully human. He's uh, righteous and sinless. Jesus is on his mission to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, sight to the blind, liberty to, uh, liberty to the oppressed, uh, and the year of God's favor. And Jesus is powerful enough to accomplish his mission since he's greater than demons and hell. He grants life, he transforms souls, and he cleanses people to make them acceptable to God. And with controversy and opposition rising around how he claims to forgive sins and whom he accepts into into his company, uh, how he doesn't follow the Jewish laws, with all this controversy coming around, he unveils a totally different spiritual people led and represented by 12 ordinary men as his apostles. And then he unveils a totally different spiritual perspective on yourself, where you have nothing to boast in, and of others where you even love your enemies, and of Jesus, knowing that he is God himself. And now that Luke has shown us all the, uh, the different facets of, of who Jesus is and kind of where he's going and stuff, uh, he's given us different pictures of repentant faith. He shows us a centurion, and he shows us a crowd that, that uh, is amazed by Jesus' miraculous supernatural power. Uh, we, you know, we, we get to see the disciples of, of John the Baptist even, who were certainly believers and yet still struggling with doubt, coming straight to the Lord, and we get to see their faith, interacting even with their doubt. We get to see a sinful woman who has nothing to offer except to just come and worship because she knows she's been forgiven much, and so she loves much. And Luke, having shown us all that, says that uh, repentant faith does not look like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the elders and the scribes. It doesn't look like the religious elite of Israel at the time. And now Luke will highlight Jesus' teaching on what results from repentant faith, on what results from it. If you have re- repentant faith, what, what comes out? And, and, uh, and in this portion of Luke, he's going to introduce now the, uh, the form of teaching in parables. I'll explain what a parable is a little bit later, but we're going to get into parables, which is why we have our title, Parables of re- Repentant Faith. Uh, we're going to cover it in four sections. Almost all of our time will be on the first two sections, and then the, uh, the remaining two will take just a, a brief moment. But each will tell us what it looks like to follow Christ, and it'll, it'll show us uh, what, what repentant faith ends up looking like in our lives. Not the approach we take, but the result that we bear. Luke is going to remind us that faith in Jesus isn't just something you do on Sundays. It's, it's not just a Sunday routine. It's not just a weekend thing. Uh, faith in Jesus is not just something you sprinkle into your regular routine of life where you live a certain way, and now that you, you call yourself a Christian, you just kind of throw in some Jesus in there. It's not that. And he's going to show us that saving faith, faith in Jesus is not something you just claim without living out. You can't claim faith in Jesus unless it shows up in everything. Maybe the way we'll say it is repentant faith, saving faith. Here's the word and produces a transformed, obedient, worshipful life. Produces a transformed, obedient, worshipful life. That's salvation. That's what saving faith does. And that'll be the common through line between the the four different passages we'll take. Uh, And in fact, Luke is going to stitch together, uh, achronologically, these different events from from various moments in Jesus' three-year ministry uh, he's going to take stuff that, that aren't chronologically next to each other, but he's going to juxtapose them into these 21 verses, and they're going to be lined up because they fit this theme that he's trying to assert. Uh, I'll put the four up here. Uh, We've got four movements. The first one will be a picture of Jesus' followers, and that'll be chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And then the second will be the parable of the soils, which will be verses 4 through 15. And then third will be the parable of the lamp, which, which will be verses uh, 16 through 18. And then last will be the uh, picture of Jesus' family, which will be verses 19 through 21. Let me just make sure I got those boundaries right. I got it right. Okay, yeah, I did it. All right, let's, let's start with the picture of Jesus' followers. Uh, and like I said, the first two are going to take most of our time, and then we'll take like 
five to ten minutes on the last two, okay? Uh, Picture of Jesus' followers, chapter 8, verse 1. It says, soon afterward, I'm going to stop you right there, all right? (laughs) That's how slow we're going to go through this passage. Uh, Soon afterward, meaning Jesus has just given this this big talk on on what it means to have a uh, this sinful woman come and worship at his feet and, uh, and, and tears on it, you know, and, and mucus and saliva and everything. It's, it, it's a mess. She's a mess. And she's like cleaning his feet with her, with her hair and then anointing with oil. She's trying to do her best to just worship him. And, uh, and it's a big picture of salvation. I think that it's, uh, it's a rather climactic one where you get to see what repentant faith really looks like. The approach to Jesus, the, the awe at his authority, marveling that God has visited us, knowing that he's the answer to our doubts, uh, coming and, and saying he deserves everything that I have, my most precious things. All of that has just happened. Soon afterward, verse 1, soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12, the 12 apostles, the 12 were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities such as Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Okay, stop there. Uh, This is not an event, okay? If you notice, this is not an event. This is a general summary statement of how Jesus' ministry was increasing as time passes. Uh, it, it seems as though this is kind of the, the, the broad statement to start Jesus' second tour through Galilee, which is northern Israel. And, uh, and he's revisiting places that he's been, most likely, right? Because he, he, it's not just one sermon for everybody and then he's done uh, and dies on the cross. He's going around and he's teaching multiple times. Now, verse 1 says it's soon afterwards, so it's, right at, uh, it's, it's soon after all these episodes that we looked at last week uh, where we saw pictures of repentant faith. And now, uh, you know, the, the fallout of all, these, uh, of all these sinful people and all these people, you know, hearing about Jesus' message of forgiveness, how he's helping a centurion, how he brings this dead boy back to life, all this stuff, all the fallout of that is that Jesus accepts sinners. That becomes very, very apparent. And that Jesus affirms women. That also was countercultural. And so that becomes very, very apparent. And Jesus defends the oppressed. That also becomes very, very apparent. There's so many angles, even just in, uh, in, in those last few passages we looked at, there are so many angles on how Jesus stands for something that Israel shunned. And this is, in my opinion, a really powerful way of demonstrating that Jesus was Savior to whom? Not just the Jews, not just the rich, healthy, male Jews, but Savior to all. And so it should be no surprise then that his following, uh, the, the following that he starts to accrue includes not just the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, but now you get some women that are mentioned here, and they're included into the roster of people that are following Jesus. And we've already seen that Jesus' 12 apostles are very regular. They're very regular people. They're, they're, not, uh, they're not these spiritually elite or anything like that. That's, that's quite the opposite of what Jesus was going for. He was trying to show that he could take anyone, even like the most useless, and transform them and do something incredible and divine with them. So let's look at this roster of women that are now following Jesus. The first is, called, is Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Magdalene just means uh, from Magdala, which is modern Migdal. And that's not helpful because I don't know where Migdal is, but you can, you can Google it, right? Uh, this, is, this is always the first name. Whenever women are listed as the followers of Jesus, whenever you have a list of women following Jesus, Mary called Magdalene, or Mary Magdalene, is always the first one listed. Uh, She is with Jesus from this point all the way on out, even at the cross. When he's on the cross, uh, she's there. And then after the cross, when he's dead and his body is being anointed, she's there. And then when when his body is being buried, she's there. Uh, Even when, uh, when Jesus had been raised from the dead and he appeared... The first people he appeared to were some women, and she was there. Some people think that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. Some people think that she was the sinful woman from last last week, stuff like that. Uh, And I have no idea where that comes from because Scripture never says any of that. The only thing we have on Mary Magdalene is that seven demons came out of her, and she was from Migdal. That's it. 
So don't, don't connect her to a life of prostitution or anything like that. You know, like she doesn't need more stuff stacked against her. You know, we should just know that Jesus saved her. Uh, he, he expelled demons out of her and she followed him faithfully. That's it, right? Don't, don't turn her in. Don't, don't merge her with the other stories. So Mary Magdalene's the first one. Second one is Joanna, the wife of Chusa, which is uh, Herod's household manager. Now, Herod, if you remember, is the, the Gentile ruler. He's the, like the king uh, of uh, Galilee. He had a manager, apparently, named Chusa. Uh, that's the highest rank. That's this manager. It's the highest rank since he's char- in charge of Herod's household, right? The king's household. He lives in the palace with the king. He manages Herod's property. He manages Herod's money. So you don't put someone in charge of that unless you trust him very, very much. Chusa doesn't seem to be a believer as far as we can tell, but his wife at some point somehow becomes a believer. The wife of Chusa is Joanna. She was part of high society. She was also living in the palace, and yet she comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know how that dynamic works, Herod is a a Gentile, right? He's hated by Israel. And Joanna was married to the manager of his household. So Chusa and Joanna wouldn't be allowed at synagogues. They wouldn't be allowed to fellowship with the true Jews. They were part of the system. They were part of the, the whole Roman system. They were part of the Gentile system. They worked for the enemy. They were just like tax collectors. They helped Herod. They helped the persecutor of Israel. And at some point, somehow... A decision had to be made by Joanna to follow Jesus Christ, to reject her worldly comforts, to reject her Gentile political friends. Everything that she was tied to had to be cut off. Maybe Joanna left Chusa because she follows Jesus from here on out, and she too will be present even when Jesus is raised from the dead and appears to some women. Joanna is there. So what we know of her is that whatever life she led ended when she started following Jesus. Third, you get this this woman named Susanna. Hello, Susanna. That's all we know about her, just her name. It's just Susanna. Uh, And then it says, plus many others. So we just know Susanna is, for some reason, more remarkable than the many others. Whoever Susanna or those many others are, they were believers. They followed Jesus. They, they literally followed Jesus. Like he would go somewhere, they would, go, they would follow after him. You know, it's, it, we say we follow Jesus, and that's more like a, a figurative way of saying it. You know, we, we are worshipers of Jesus. But these people actually followed him wherever he went. Verse 2 says some of these women were healed of evil uh, spirits and infirmities. So maybe Susanna was healed of something, maybe. But they followed Jesus because they believed in him. In, in every case, the, uh, what's, what's being told to you here is that the life that each of these women led was drastically changed. All of this was incredibly pol- uh, uh, politically incorrect for Jesus' day. Accumulating a lot of women for religious work was sacrilege back in that day. Even today, if, you were, if a guy were to accumulate a lot of women for, uh, for ministry, the people would say stuff. Jesus didn't seem to, to care about his, uh, his public reputation all that much. Women couldn't be influential in that society because that society had such a low view of women. Women couldn't testify in court. They were, uh, they were deemed liars by nature. And yet Jesus brought them along to do the ministry work as he went from town to town preaching the good news of the kingdom, preaching the gospel, preaching repentance. They were either demon-possessed or they were working for Gentiles, or they were sick with disease, or they were just plain nobodies. They didn't even have names. They're just part of the many others. Some of them were low class. Some of them, like Joanna, were high class. But it didn't matter. Everything boils down to just followers of Jesus. Your standing in the world never meant a thing if you come to him. So, We either have no important information about these women, or we only have bad information about them. And then yet, that's what Jesus wanted. He just wanted people who had nothing to offer, nothing to stand on, nothing to boast in. They joined the ranks of other women who mattered so much to Luke. Luke has uh, taken the, the time to record their moments 
for all these various women in the account of Jesus. He talks about Elizabeth, the wife of Zechariah, the priest. He talks about Mary, the mother of Jesus. He talks about Anna, this 84-year-old widow. He talks about Simon's mother-in-law and how she served after she was healed. He, he talks about the widow of nine whose son uh, was brought back to life. He talks about a sinful woman who wept at Jesus' feet. And we'll meet more, more women as Luke keeps telling the story. We'll meet a crippled woman. We'll meet a few more widows. You'll see. These were women who had nothing to offer, nothing to stand on, nothing to boast in. But they repented and believed in Jesus. And by joining him, they had no stable income. Jesus' ministry was supported only by what people contributed. People gave offering. That was it. It was, it was uh, run by the generosity of, of people who wanted to just throw something in. That got collected into a money box that was managed by a treasurer in John 13, 29, who turns out to be Judas Iscariot. And he's like pilfering from the money box. He's taking stuff. So they even have less money to live on. They had enough to cover necessities like food, and then give some to the poor because they prioritized that, but they didn't have a stable home. Jesus kept traveling. That's why Luke 9.58, it says, uh, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had nowhere to, he had nowhere to stay, no, nowhere to, to reside and call home. He was always on the move. So everyone who followed him was always on the move. Verse 3 says that these women provided from their own means provided, which is actually the word serving, they served from their own means. Uh, they had no, no income now, but they provided. The word is diakoneo, which is uh, the word serve, and that's where we get the word deacon, servant. They're nobody important on a secular scale, but Jesus has a totally different spiritual person in mind. The person who's repentant, the repentant believer, someone who has nothing to offer, yet comes to God pleading for mercy and loves much because they know they've been forgiven much. Repentant faith, saving faith, hears the word of God and produces a transformed, obedient, worshipful life. Let's look at the parable of the soils. Luke will then bring us into this moment where Jesus teaches on, on this very, very famous parable, and he'll make the same point here. Uh, verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and, with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As Jesus said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, it's, it's curious to see how Jesus makes a turn. He starts to speak in parables now. He hasn't done that before. This is also recorded in Matthew 13 and Mark 4. So I'll kind of make a small mention here and there of Matthew 13 and Mark 4 because they also talk about this event. But this allows Jesus, by teaching in parables, it allows Jesus to teach great crowds, people coming from town after town without garnering too much heat from his enemies. And the reason why is because unbelievers would hear him and they'd hear this very decorative story about a guy who's just throwing seeds around and then it grows up and whatever, and they don't understand it. And so they go, what is this? This doesn't make any sense. This guy's crazy. They turn around, they walk away. They have that kind of doubt that excuses them from seeking after God. But believers, saving faith, repentant faith, they would hear, they wouldn't understand, and so they would pursue. They would go straight to God for an answer. They would seek the truth. They, when they have doubt or confusion, they go straight to God for answers. And so this crowd is huge. Matthew 13 tells us that it's so big that once again, Jesus has to get on a boat and kind of push off from shore so that they're all on, you know, on the land. And then he's using the acoustics of the wind going from water toward land. And it carries his voice and it bounces off the water. And it's, it makes a, a natural amphitheater. He would have more space, better acoustics because the crowd has gotten so big. A parable, then, is what he tells. And a parable is a fictional story. It's, a, it's an extended metaphor. It's a fictional story that teaches a moral, spiritual principle. 
right? So you can, uh, you can have like very quick statements, you know, just little symbolic proverbs. But a parable is like that. It's just, it's a little bit longer. It's more of a story and it has a moral lesson at the end, right? They almost, uh, they almost always have one intended meaning. And really, I think uh, it's almost always safe to just say one intended meaning, just one. If you try to allegorize every element in a story, if you try to make every character, every event symbolic of a true person or a uh, true event, it breaks down. So the fable, uh, I'll, I'll give you the, an example of uh, the tortoise and the hare. You guys know that, the, t- the tortoise and the rabbit, right? There's a, an Aesop's fable. It's where a tortoise and a rabbit, they're going to race, right? And as they do that, the, the rabbit, you know, he burns ahead. And then he turns around, he's like, I got so much time, I'm totally winning this race. So then he decides to take a nap. And he naps so long that the tortoise overtakes him and crosses the finish line. Then the rabbit wakes up and goes, oh no, I lost. So that's the, that's the whole fable, right? That's, that's the parable. And the, the lesson of that is slow and steady wins the race, right? Slow and steady wins the race. Uh, and then if you just take that fable, you go, okay, that's the lesson. But if you try to go, what is the, the tortoise symbolic of? What's the rabbit symbolic of? What is the nap symbolic of? What is the road symbolic? And if you try to do that, sometimes you can make it work, but sometimes it starts to break down. And so you don't want to do that. You don't want to start uh, deconstructing everything that, uh, that the parable does. It really is intended to make a singular point. Parables make truth much more vivid, much more interesting and memorable, and even emotional sometimes. And I think for modern audiences, parables are almost obvious in their meaning because you're educated you know, because you, you've, you've gone through school and they've taught you about symbolism and simile and metaphor and allegory, etc. You know, so if you, if you have paid attention and have at least a little bit of interest in, in literature or English, then, then you do okay with this kind of stuff. You can read the parables and go, oh, I get it. But it'd be very different 2,000 years ago for an illiterate audience that was uneducated, where their culture was not ex- as extensive in their, uh, in their symbolism, in their poetry. They were usually more direct. They still had, you know, imagery, but it wasn't like this. You know, their, their poetry, their art, their music, their stories, it wasn't as, uh, as allegorical as we oftentimes have in our culture. So without explanation, a parable can mean anything or it can mean nothing. Only the one who's telling it, the author of the parable, can really give you its, its true meaning. This parable, then, is about a sower, a farmer, a person who wants to plant seeds. Uh, and he's, he's scattering seeds. They fall on four different kinds of soil, right? And this imagery would have made so much more sense to the agricultural audience that Jesus is speaking to. He was always good at contextualizing for, for his audience. Uh, this, this was everyday life for them, sowing seeds everywhere, ending up on different soils. That's called broadcasting. That, that's the, the, the word for that is broadcasting. We, in our pavement world, we, we uh, need explanation of this because when we hear broadcasting, we think of radio and media. But broadcasting was a farming term. So this, this imagery makes more sense to them. And for us, we kind of need it unpacked a little bit. In Israel, the fields were these long, narrow strips. They would have known what it looks like. We need explanation on it. These long, narrow strips, and between these long, narrow strips, there are like these three-foot-wide beaten paths that you can walk on, uh, be, you know, to go between fields. As you're going between fields, you can be plucking grain and eating the kernels. That's what Jesus and his disciples would do. They got, they got caught doing that, right? There are no fences. There are no walls around the fields. You just walk on the path between and do your thing. There were four different kinds of soil in this story. The, the sower throws seed and it lands on different kinds of soil. So the first one that's mentioned is the path, the path. And that's as you throw seed, you hope to throw it out onto the field, but sometimes the wind will carry it. It lands on the, on the path, right? And the path is, that's, that's the road, the trail, or whatever you want to call it. The path is hardened, it's dry, it's dense, the seed cannot get buried, it remains exposed, and so it either gets trampled on by people walking by or you know, whatever, walking by animals, uh, or it just gets plucked up and eaten by birds. Second is the rocky soil. And it's not just small rocks. It's not just soil that's made of, like, little rocks. It's not just that. It's, uh, it's, it's talking about a large rock bed, because that's how Israel is. If you dig deep enough, you get a rock bed, 
right? So uh, it's, it's not lots of little rocks. It's one gigantic rock. So the, the rocky soil is really, it, it, it's tiny rocks on top of a, a large rock bed. Israel is rocky. And uh, seeds that fall here, they can't get buried, or at least not very deep, because something will uh, it, it'll get a little buried under these tiny little pebbles, but then it'll sprout up, and the roots try to go down, but they hit the rock bed. And so it, it sprouts up, but then there's, there's no foundation for it. And the roots are supposed to pull moisture from the ground, and yet it can't do that. And so it dries out. The roots don't go deep, so it can't draw enough water or nutrients. It'll die. It can't withstand the sun. Third is the thorny soil. This is the, most, uh, this is the soil that has the, you know, the thorns and thistles and prickly things. They're weeds. They, they choke out other plants. Uh, you have to pull the weeds out by the root or else they grow back. It spreads. Uh, if, if you just pull it by the, you know, the top of the, the weed, just what, what's showing, uh, that just ends up spreading uh, the seeds of the weeds. And then you have a bigger problem and you have to root it out even more. And then you have good soil. This is what the farmer hopes for. You hope the soil is good soil. And when it produces crop, it produces an abundant crop. A tenfold crop is good. A sevenfold crop is average. A hundredfold crop is ridiculous. And Jesus keys in on that intentionally. Because this parable is meant to tell you a story to give you a spiritual lesson. And he says the good soil doesn't just produce average crop, not just good crop, but ridiculously good. The abundance of it is unmistakable. You don't have to question, is this good soil or not? You never have to ask that if it's a yield of a hundredfold. As this story is told, we can identify its point. The meaning of the parable revolves around the type of soil. There's no remark about how skilled the sower is or who's the sower. There's no remark about his method of sowing, whether it's good or bad. That's a non-issue. There's no remark about the seed or whether it was unhealthy seed or seed that was not appropriate for this area. Maybe it's indigenous to some other region. That's a non-issue. Those are not factors taken into account in this parable. The only thing that the parable pays attention to is the condition of the soil. That's what the point is on, the condition of the soil. The seed will bear fruit if the soil is good. Now, some people probably got it. Some might be confused. Some probably didn't care. And so Jesus wraps it at the end. He just goes, if you have ears, hear. And that's like saying, if you're meant to understand, understand. And that regathers attention. It makes all the believers go, wait a minute, I want to understand this. You know, he has this, this way of just, he, he'll throw out little statements like that just to, uh, to resynchronize everyone's attention and make sure they go, am I paying attention? Am I doing that? I have my own kind of version of it. I, sometimes I explain something and then I sarcastically say, ah, you, don't, you guys don't care. And I know some of you do. I've met with both of you. <laughs> but the ones that do reveal themselves, you know, the, the ones that, that, that do reveal themselves say, I want to know. Like, what is that? Or I was paying attention. They're, you know, that's, that's what Jesus is keying in on is these are the ones who have ears to hear. These are the ones meant to understand. That's what a believer does. They go after the truth. And believers will let someone else know. They go, I, you know, I care. That's interesting. Uh, teacher, tell me more. Whatever. That's what they'll do with Jesus. And this works out. Some of Jesus' disciples ended up asking Jesus what he meant, right? They wanted to know. They, they, they came up and, and asked him, what do these four soils mean? Verse 9, when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. You see, Jesus said, if you're meant to understand, you better understand. And the believers came to him, and they said, okay, explain. We want to understand. And his answer is, well, you can understand because you want to understand. Everyone else, they don't care. They won't get it. Jesus will often use parables so his enemies don't understand. They don't cause trouble. They don't try to rebut or interfere. He'll do that just to, to make sure that he's still teaching his disciples 
but he's not increasing the opposition that's mounting against him. By the way, the, the, that whole thing where it says in verse 10, uh, to you has been, given, uh, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, the secrets of the kingdom of God, right? That doesn't mean some elusive mystical truth that you need magical powers to, to ascertain, you know, like only our teacher, only our pastor has the secrets of the kingdom. It, it should never be that. And you should never think that that's what's going on. Secrets or uh, the Greek word mysterion, mysteries, uh, that idea is just things that weren't revealed before, things you didn't know before, a previously unknown thing. Paul in Ephesians 3 calls himself an apostle of the mysteries, and he's talking about the gospel. So it's not some secret cult thing. It's what's revealed in the New Testament. The New Testament is stuff that wasn't revealed yet in the Old Testament. And so it's the mystery of the gospel, right? It's stuff that people didn't know from the Old Testament, but the New Testament explains. So the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus, right? The mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of the church, the mystery of the rapture, the mystery of the resurrection. These are all things that are talked about in the New Testament very plainly, but were not talked about in the Old Testament, those are all things that were mysteries, but they're not anymore. Okay, so it's not some cult thing. It's not like, you know, only certain people get the mysteries and the secrets of the kingdom. It's not that. All right, verse 11. Now, the parable is this, says Jesus. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. I'm going to actually, I'm going to stop right there for a sec. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God, namely the gospel. The parable is about a sower who distributes the word of God. Right? And it can be anyone. It can be you. It can be me. Fine. There's a different parable in a, you know, somewhere else in the Gospels where there's a sower who turns out to be Jesus, the Son of Man. But that's a totally different parable. Don't mix these two together. Don't combine them and, and make a, like a parable cinematic universe. Don't do that. Right? Uh, you wouldn't mix the tortoise and the rabbit with Aesop's fable of the tortoise and the ducks. That's a different parable. Google that later. Uh, different fable, different tortoise. Don't pretend they're the same thing, okay? Uh, this, is a par- this is the parable. The seed is the word of God, verse 12. The ones along the path, the seeds along the path, are those who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rocks are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Okay. Again, this parable is about the soil. What is the soil? What does it represent? Well, in verse 12, it says the devil comes and takes away the word from the heart. Why? Why does he take it away from the heart? So that they may not believe and be saved. And verse 15 says the good soil is hearing the word, holding it fast in an honest and good heart. The soil is the heart. That's your will, your, your values, your mindset, your affections. That's what this is. And repeated again and again and again in every portion of this parable is the idea of this is how you hear. Right? Those who hear, those who hear, hearing the word. So if the, if the seed is the gospel or the word of God, it's, it's scattered. How do people hear it? This parable is on the condition of the heart. The outcome is, is on if someone has repented and, and does believe and is saved. Right? So you have four soils. Three of them are not saved. One of them is saved. Three soils, three are not saved. One is saved. And it's based on how they hear the word. Well, let's, let's break it down. Let's look at the four kinds of hearts, the four conditions of the heart. The first is the path, right, in verse 12. It's, this, uh, it, it's that rocky, it, sorry, it's the dense path where the, the seed can't get, get buried down at all. Uh, that's hard-hearted unbelief. The one that hates correction, the one that's hostile to repentance, whose mind is shut to the gospel. 
And just remember, Jesus isn't speaking to atheists, by the way. He's speaking of Jews, like the Pharisees. So religious people who say that they know God and believe the scriptures. Pe- people who are very religious and say that they believe all the regular stuff, right? You don't have to be atheist to be hard-hearted. You can think that you believe in God. You can think you believe in scripture. But if you refuse to repent, you are the path. The more they hear him, the more they hate him. There's a self-righteousness. There's, a, there's an intellectualism about it where they hear a passage and instead of being brought to repentance and saying, I'm a, I'm a sinner that needs to be saved, they hear a passage and they just talk about what it means theologically, philosophically. They interact with what, what the nuances could mean theologically. They don't do the heart work of repenting. The devil has deceived these people. Hard-hearted people will latch on to false teachers. They'll latch on to, uh, to intellectualism that attacks the gospel. They'll latch on to, uh, to everything where you try to change what the Bible says. They'll, you know, Strong opinions about politics or morals or philosophy, social justice, etc. Luke keeps going to war against these kinds, of, these, these kinds of things that get imported in and contaminate the gospel. The hard-hearted can reject the gospel for the fear of man. They can reject the gospel because they have shame about being connected to Jesus. They can reject the gospel because of fear of persecution, of, uh, because they have doubt, because they have prejudice or stubbornness or a staunch love for sin or worldliness or false religion or pride, etc. There's a bunch of different reasons. They don't want to say that they were wrong. They don't want to say that they were spiritually bankrupt before God. That's the path. That's the hard-heartedness. Where they say, I'm fine. And you know it's you if you're more interested in checking your phone than hearing God's word. You know it's you if you're wondering how fast you can leave from this place and get to do whatever else you have planned to do. You know it's you if church is just taking up your time, but you have no interest in being taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness. And if you know that's you, you can change the condition of your heart. You don't have to be hard-hearted. You can surrender to God. You can plead to Him to help you. You can repent. You can pray for change. You can ask a leader to pray with you, pray for you. That's the path. Then there's the rocky soil in verse 13, and this is shallow faith, right? It's it's the, the seed that falls on rocky soil, and there's a rock bed underneath. It can't take root. This is the, the, the kind of so-called faith that hears the gospel, receives the gospel with great joy, but after some time, it falls away when it's tested. There's no remark on how long it takes before this person falls away from the faith. But this person falls away. And that is the evident sign that they were unsaved. That's tricky because whenever we see someone who's receptive to the gospel, we expect that it'll last. They're solid. I will admit, as a pastor, someone comes to our church, they show a lot of excitement. They go, I want to be a member. I want to serve. And all of that. And of course, we're overjoyed. All the leaders were overjoyed. And we go, yeah, this is it. And then sometimes when they're tested, they fall away. Just because they're, they're happy to be here and excited, interested, learning a lot. That is not the sign of salvation. Joy is not the distinguishing feature of salvation. Church involvement is not the distinguishing feature of salvation. Those can be faked for a while. Those often are. You know, it can be a phase. Just because you cried during a prayer meeting at your youth group retreat does not mean you are a Christian. People often respond to the gospel for the wrong reasons. It could be like a recent breakup or a divorce, a lost job, sickness, or they just need community. They're looking for friends, comfort, whatever. If that's the reason you're a Christian, if that's the reason you're a Christian, if the reason you're a Christian is connected to something like that, you will fall away. The only one that actually is connected to Jesus is the faith that says, Jesus is my prize. The reward for following Jesus is Jesus. You hear me say that a lot. If Jesus is not your passion and your prize, you will fall away. If you came to church for community, someone's going to upset you and you will eventually leave. If you came to church because you needed comfort, 
from some recent tragedy or crisis, you'll feel better and then you'll move on. The popular remark for rocky soil, for hearts that are like rocky soil, shallow faith, is something like, I didn't think it'd be this hard. I didn't think being a Christian would be this hard. And that's just another way of saying, I didn't really want to surrender everything. I didn't want to surrender all to Jesus. It's the way of saying, uh, why did my life turn out this way if I'm a Christian? Why didn't God give me something better? And it reveals that spirit of entitlement, that lack of repentance, where you say, I do have something to stand on. I have something to, to boast in. I have something to offer. And God owes me. Why didn't he give me a happy life? Why did he let this happen to me or to someone that I care about? Why would he let that happen? He's not allowed to. I deserve better. And so they fall away. Perseverance has always been the indicator that we're told to look to. That's the distinguishing feature of salvation. Staying true when you're hurting, when you're suffering, when you're abused, when you're alone. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. See, it's, it's when someone is offended and insulted and upset. In that moment, that's when you see their faith in action. Or you see that their faith is a lie. It's like that person who, uh, when something's like, when they're really upset, insulted, offended about something, and they just go, I'm fine. You go, what's, like, what's on your heart? I'm fine. And they just tell you that. When you know they're not fine and they say, I'm fine, there's no faith in that. There's no maturity in that. There's no confession there. The Holy Spirit did not tell you to say that. That's something else. If someone blames or slanders or speaks hurtfully against the one who upset him or her, there's no faith there. The Holy Spirit didn't tell you to speak like that. Faith is seen visibly when you persevere. When you have every reason to attack back but instead, you react in prayer, self-denial, courage, humility, reconciliation, and worship. Shallow faith gives up when life is hard. It says, Jesus didn't work. I tried it. He didn't, he didn't fix my life. That faith is not saving faith. And if you know this is you, now is the time to pray for a changed heart. You do not have to stay shallow faith. You can ask for prayer. You can have a leader pray for you. You can spend time and just come before the Lord. There's a third type of soil, a thorny soil in verse 14. This is, uh, this is uh, what's a, I guess you could say a shared faith or like a, a split faith. It goes to multiple areas. So you, you love Jesus, but you love the world too. So your faith is, is shared to two different things, to God and to the world. Money and pleasure or something like that, you know. But it, it, it's hard to choose just one. You're like, I love Jesus, but I also love this thing. And it's hard to choose just one. And when you love Jesus and something of the world, you don't really love Jesus, just so you know. When you say you love Jesus, and then you love the world too, you don't actually love Jesus because you don't really understand what's going on. That's how Jesus says it, right? That, that's, how, that's how God says it. That's how Jesus says it. Look at 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life 
is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And then in verse 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things that you worry about, what you eat, drink, what you wear, all the stuff that you worry about in terms of worldliness. All these things will be added to you. They'll be taken care of. It doesn't have to be money that you're in love with. It doesn't have to be money. It's really just anything that competes with your trust and obedience and love for Jesus. When tempted with with something else, whether it be money or career, significant other, pleasure, some kind of a substance, whatever, so-called Christians, when they have that kind of split faith or, or, or they share their faith between two different masters, what do they do? They jettison their faith in Jesus. Jesus, the gospel, church, these are things they're willing to compromise to have what they really want. They come to church for a while. I like Jesus, and I like this other stuff in the world. And then when they're offered something in the world, they're like, okay, I'm done with church. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you can't be a follower of anything else. You have to give up all, all your sin, all your, all your loves, all of it. That's what surrender is. And it's this lifelong process of humbly learning and growing by praying and sharing and fellowshipping. But that willingness has to start now. Well, then there's this fourth soil. In, uh, it's, it's good soil in verse 15. The good soil. And this is saving faith. This is the only soil that's actually saved. It hears the word. It holds on to it in an honest and good heart. And bears fruit with patience. Matthew 13 says that this is the person who understands the word. Mark 4 says it's those who accept the word. There's no rebuttal. There's no amendment with our modern philosophy or our social sciences to somehow fix God's word, make it more culturally appropriate. No politics or personal preferences or religious traditions or ethnic customs to update God to fit our human wisdom or the spirit of the age. We don't do that. Just When it's good soil, they hear the word of God and they just receive it. They say, this is the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Now, think about this. The rocky and the thorny soil, that second and third soil, they're really important theologically because this parable is about saving faith. And as we've seen, the fourth soil is the only soil that's actually saved. It's about salvation in the heart, right? How you hear and receive the gospel and how you react to it. What results when you, when you listen to the gospel? What results when you hear the word of God? And the good soil is the only one that actually bears fruit and is saved. But the, the, the rocky and thorny soil, for a time there seems to be some kind of a response. The, the rocky soil it sprouts up, great joy. And then when things get tough, when, when tragedy hits, it burns out. When suffering comes, it says, that's not for me. The thorny soil also springs up. But as it's growing, there's a love for something else that chokes out whatever so-called love for Jesus was starting to bud. What this tells you is that saving faith, true saving faith, is permanent. When people fall away, there was no salvation. They were rocky soil or they were thorny soil. That's what Jesus says. Let me just try to... to, uh, beat this thing into the ground. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide or remain, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. How do you know you're saved? You stay in his word. You don't fall away. You stay in it. Romans 11, verse 12. 
Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Right? You're learning and growing and stuff, you think, but then the only one that's actually saved is the one that continues in his kindness. What really is the end result for those who fall away? They're cut off. And that's just a decorative way to say that they're not saved. It doesn't mean that they had salvation and lost it. It's not that. When you have eternal life, you can't take away eternal life, or that life was rather temporary. 1 Corinthians 15.1, the Apostle Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast, meaning hang on to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. When you let go, when you walk away, when you fall away, you have believed in vain. That faith was not saving faith. It amounts to no salvation at all. Galatians 6.8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let us not grow weary. We will reap if we do not give up. Colossians 1.22, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Is it becoming clear? Hebrews 3.6, in case the answer to that is no. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 1 John 2.19 they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they, wouldn't, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They're not Christians. They left. That's how you know. I think you get it. I think Matthew 10.22 says, uh, the one who overcomes, the one who overcomes to the end, that's the one that's saved. If you reference our archives uh, in Romans, there's an appendix message called Can a Christian Lose Salvation? You can go there for a much more elaborate explanation on all this stuff. But this is a solid warning that time reveals the nature of faith. And the distinguishing feature of salvation is fruit that perseveres. True saving faith continues to produce fruit for the rest of your life. It doesn't fall away doesn't lose interest. Now, what's the fruit that's produced, by the way? It's not complicated. It's just, you know, fruit. It's just something good, healthy. That's what's produced, right? And for all that, the, that Jesus has been talking about, he has a, a identified a totally different perspective on self, totally diff- different perspective on others, totally different perspective on Jesus. That's, that's part of the fruit, a transformed perspective, right? He's talked about repentance from sin and about trust in him, faith in him. That's fruit. It's a godly mindset that results in godly behavior. You can call it the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. You can call it the fruit of righteousness from Philippians 1. You can call it the fruit of lips that acknowledge and praise God from Hebrews 13. You can call it the fruit of good work and increasing knowledge of God in Colossians 1. You can call it the fruit of abiding in Jesus' love, John chapter 15. It's all of those. You don't have to get technical. It's fruit. It's noticeable, good, healthy results produced for the rest of your life, and it comes from the gospel. It is the result of the gospel in your life bearing abundant produce all the way till you die. Repentant faith, saving faith, hears the word of God and produces a transformed, obedient, worshipful life. 
And then you get to verse 16, you get to the parable of the lamp. And if you notice, Luke doesn't give you a transitional statement. He's still in the middle of dialogue with Jesus. Jesus talks about the good soil, explains the good soil. And then the next sentence, he's still talking. So it's still in the same monologue that he's giving. Verse 16, no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, or, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Okay, he's still talking after that whole explanation of the four soils, and as he's talking, going into this parable of the lamp, he connects it to the same idea that the parable of the four soils is about, which is how you hear, how you hear the word of God. And he has an application connected to the, the, the interpretive key. Take care then how you hear, how you listen to God's word. How you listen to God's word is connected to the condition of your heart. He who has ears, let him hear. That's how you receive and understand. That's how you hear. When you come to a sermon, well, how do you hear? Do you come critically? Do you come to see whether or not you like what you're listening to? Or do you come to just see what God has said, what he has revealed about himself, what he's revealed about human beings, what he's revealed about the plan of salvation? Hear the word of Yahweh. That's said maybe 35 times in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel. That's like half a dozen times. Today, hear his voice. That comes up in Psalm 95. It comes up in Hebrews 3 and 4. In chapter 9, God will say of Jesus, this is my son. Listen to him. Hear him. How do you listen to God's word? Is it to confirm your own opinions? To kind of stuff into your own opinions? Or is it, to, is it where you come ready to receive and hear what he says? And to hold on to it, to accept it, to understand it. Jesus' parable here tells you how repentant faith, how saving faith responds to his word. And in this little parable about this lamp, you know, you, you light it, you don't put it under a bowl, you, you light it, it gives light everywhere. In this parable, he tells you three results from hearing the word properly. If you're good soil, this is, this is what happens when you hear the word properly. First is you're, you, you listen missionally and evangelistically. Missionally or evangelistically, verse, verse 16. A lamp is not to be hidden, right? Uh, it, it, a lamp is not to be hidden. It's, it's meant to give its light away. You listen so that you can share, so others can see. You don't listen and then not tell anyone. You don't hide the gospel. You don't shy away from sharing it. That's not saving faith. That's faith that fears the world and does not revere the Lord. Repentant, saving faith always puts the word on display, like light. Second, when you have the good soil of the heart, you, you listen to the word sincerely or confessionally, like it talks about in verse 17. Everything hidden, everything secret will be revealed, right? You, you hear without secrets. You hear without hypocrisy. You, listen, you hear without fakeness, without churchiness, religiousness. You don't do that. You don't pretend. Repentant, saving faith receives the word sincerely or confessionally, admits weakness, asks for prayer, asks for help, doesn't listen and then just try to hide stuff, pretend that we're okay. How you doing? I'm fine. It's not that. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't doll it up. Oh, yeah, I'm struggling with sin this week. Uh, it's, it's pretty bad. It's, uh, yeah, you know, some, someone did something to me. And that's like, you know, that's not, that's not a real confession. That doesn't do anything. That's way too safe to say. Saving faith hears the word and, and hears it sincerely, confessionally. He says, I need to be corrected here. This is where I sinned. This is where the blood of Jesus washes me clean. This is where I need prayer to overcome so that I can evidence that transformation in my life. Third way that good soil hears, uh, hears the word of God, increasingly or fruitfully, as verse 18 will tell us. It says, to the, to the one who has, more will be given. 
And he, it's, you know, it's the one who, who doesn't have. Even what he thinks he has will be taken away. If you have saving faith, you will be rewarded with more. That means growing in faith, like growing in trust. You'll, you'll start to trust Jesus even more as time goes on. You'll, you'll grow in faith. You'll grow in godliness. It also means more than that, by the way. It also means that you're going to inherit glory and Jesus' kingdom with him in the future. Right? Like just in, in case we're just talking about like your, your actual provisions, what you eat, drink, wear, all that stuff, you will inherit the kingdom of God. That like Jesus will return at the second coming and he'll establish a kingdom and then all believers will be there and we will have the kingdom. So what you have now, you have, you have a little bit of money, you have, you have you know, a place to live, clothes to wear, you have, fine, what you have, but you'll have more. And this is not to elicit your greed or anything, but just to let you know that like, whatever you think you're struggling in right now is only temporary. You will have more. You'll have abundantly more than you ever need. He's never ever trying to motivate you by your greed, by your materialism, but he is saying, like, don't think that you're going to struggle in the future about this kind of stuff. Of course not. Whatever you think you can have here just won't compare to what all of God's people will have in abundance when Jesus returns. And the people who don't have saving faith, everything that they have here, everything they've put their trust in, will be taken away. It'll all burn up. And they'll have nothing. Repentant faith, saving faith, hears the word of God and produces a transformed, obedient, worshipful life. Let me just close with a picture of Jesus' family in verses 19 to 21. It says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But Jesus answered them. He said, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers couldn't reach him, you know, and he seems kind of indifferent. Okay, get this. Jesus' parents, after Jesus was born, you know, because Mary was a virgin, uh, after Jesus was born, then they had more kids, right? Uh, Mark 6, verse 3. It says, uh, you know, some people are saying, hey, isn't this Jesus the, 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 the carpenter's son? or the, uh, Isn't this the, the builder? Maybe carpenter's not a, a good word. Builder is better. Tecton, mason, maybe. Uh, isn't this the builder, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? Right. So Jesus has siblings. His his uh, his mom, his biological mom, and his foster dad. They had kids after he was born. But then John chapter seven verse five, for not even his brothers believed in him. And by the way, they'll come to faith in him later, says Acts chapter one verse fourteen. But at this moment. They don't believe in him. Okay, so Jesus' mother and brothers, they, they come to him and they want to see him, but his brothers don't believe in him. His mom does. She always did because, you know, the angel told this is the Messiah. Makes it easy. But his brothers did not at this time believe in him. And they're like, we want to see him. And Jesus is like, yeah, so? And he's, he's not at all interested in a relationship with, with them. That's so weird. The only relationship he's interested in are with those who hear the word of God and do it. He's like, those are my brothers. Those, that, those are my mothers. That's my mother and brothers. He doesn't say those are my fathers. God is father. And he, like, he protects that. He doesn't let anyone get confused about that thing. But this is what connects someone to Jesus. This is the mark of salvation. They hear the word and they do it for the rest of their lives. We hear the word and we do it with perseverance. Nothing, nobody starts off like that, right? But the believer comes in repentance and hears the word of God and receives it and it bears fruit. It starts to bear fruit and over and over again, it starts to increase more and more. Faithful men and women, ordinary men and women, become faithful. There's good soil in the heart. It's a lamp that gives light. It's obedient people who comprise the family of God. 
Moment after moment, Luke reminds us that true faith in Jesus isn't just something you do on Sundays. It's not a weekend thing. It's not something you sprinkle into your routine. It's not something you just claim to have but refuse to live out. Repentant faith, saving faith, hears the word of God and produces a transformed, obedient, worshipful life. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We hear it. We accept it. We understand it. We receive it. We obey it. Again, we are awestruck by your mercy. We stand amazed because you save people who never earned it, who come to you with nothing and can only plead for mercy. And oh, how you lavish them with it, how you pour out your grace. We pray for an increase in those who exhibit saving faith. Let him or her who has ears, let that person hear. We pray that they would hear with an honest and good heart and that it would produce abundantly, a hundredfold, unmistakably, a transformed, obedient, worshipful life permanently with steadfastness and perseverance. Don't let us be deceived, Lord, by the notion of excitement and church involvement that is not enough. It is an undying trust and love for Jesus. And so for those of us whose hearts are misaligned, who, whose uh, hearts are not good soil, we pray, Lord, that you would help us overcome our unbelief. And in areas where we're not yet fully transformed, where we still need to be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained, we pray that you would bring it and that we would hear it and receive it and that the change would be so visible and evident that people will see our light shine and they'll praise our God in heaven. Bless this church, Lord. May people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We pray all this for his glory and his name. Amen.